Hello, this is Pixelated Playgrounds, a gaming book club podcast discussing the art and craft of video games. I'm Brian Skersha. I'm Josh Kalecki. And today, we're talking about Norco, developed by Geography of Robots and published by Raw Fury. It was released for Mac and PC in March of 2022, and we'll be talking spoilers, so heads up if you're sensitive to that. So why are we playing this game? Uh, It came to Game Pass. Brian gave it a whirl and loved it, Uh, suggested it to me, and I've got my own little history with New Orleans. Um, Right immediately after getting married, me and my wife started travel nursing contracts down in the Big Easy, and then about uh, two and a half months into that, uh, this thing called COVID started happening while we were working (laughs) in the hospitals, and there were dumpster fires everywhere. Uh, Because nobody knew what was going on, anywhere, whatever. Uh, So I've got a history with the city, too. And I heard good things about the game, picked it up, and loved it. Yeah, I mean, your history with the game is probably as interesting a story as the game itself tells, honestly. Like, who can say that their first time living in New Orleans was, like, the run-up to uh, the 21st century's first global pandemic? Um, You know, that's really quite a thing. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, we had this plan to do travel nursing for a year or two and, you know, see a lot of the country, see what happens. It's very different when there is a pandemic raging around there. But of all the places we visited, um, we got New Orleans for some of that pre-COVID times. And I feel that was the best city to get the full experience, especially... Since we got that down there on the 1st of January, which is when Mardi Gras season starts. Yeah, that's true. So you had like a few glorious weeks and then like the world fell apart. So that's... Oh, yeah, it was like two two glorious months before the world fell apart. I will take that. All said okay. and done. Yeah, when all said and done, uh, that is, I mean, <laughs> you'd probably rather have it the other way. But hey, um, at least you got those those few weeks. Um, if you haven't picked it up yet by now, Norco is a game about uh, the Bayou area, you know, New Orleans and its surrounding environs, specifically the town of Norco, which stands for New Orleans Refining Company, uh, which was later bought by Shell and still exists as a undesignated sort of census area in Uh, the suburbs of New Orleans. In the game itself, it's still Norco that owns and runs the refinery inside Mm. Norco, so it is very big company town. Yeah, it's actually Shield. Shield, Shield, that's right. It's a very thinly veiled reference. It's different. (laughs) Don't sue us. Yes, Shield. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, if you say it with that uh, Bayou accent, it almost sounds the same, but... um, Anyway, the creator, Yutz, uh, who is one of the primaries of Geography of Robots, was born and raised in Norco. So we're talking about a person who has hyper-local knowledge making a game about a hyper-local thing. Hyper-local is a good adjective to describe this game because the game just reeks of Louisiana in a good way, a very positive way. Uh, In fact, I saw an interview by Yutz where he talked about growing up in the town and there is that flame stack hanging over the refinery and how that just fascinated him to no end as a child. Like his attention kept getting drawn back to it. And even after he left this, uh, left the town of Norco, like, like a moth to the flame, he was still drawn to that symbol to the refinery. Yeah. You mentioned, uh, 
<laughs> drawn like a moth to flame. I, the words that I read were frightened yet transfixed by the landscape around Norco, <laughs> which is um, quite the, the phrase. You know, I think it, it is a really evocative setting. And, you know, I'm wondering if, like, given enough time and talent, you and I could make a game about the Metter Mall that has this same <laughs> level <laughs> of vibes. <laughs> uh, probably not. But we'll save that conversation for another day. Um, <laughs> at any rate, uh, this is a really interesting project in that it took a lot of different forms over the years. You know, Norco wasn't always the point-and-click adventure that we're going to be talking about today. It started off as sort of a multimedia project between uh, Yutz and a few other collaborators. Uh, you know, they did interviews, they had uh, some, you know, video production items and some artwork. And eventually they created a, a side-scrolling platformer game, and eventually that evolved uh, further into the, the point-and-click adventure that we're going to be talking about. That kind of makes sense when you think about it. Like, this game started off, quote-unquote, as a side-scroller adventure game. You're playing as Million, who is also one of the characters in uh, Norco, uh, but she is breaking into an oil refinery, and that was, like, part and parcel of a exhibit or a kind of um, a project about uh, the town of Norco. And you can see how Yutz took the idea from that exhibit of kind of making an archive of that time and place. Mm -hmm. And it evolved into what Norco is and informs the game at every level. Totally. I mean, this game is nothing if not um, sort of a send-up to the history and progression of history in a specific region about the forces that act on it and, you know, how it changes over time and, you know, eventually what it's going to uh, become because this game is not set in the present or even the past. Uh, it's sort of a near-future alternate history, sort of a sci-fi um future i guess sort of near future sci-fi in uh, norco the way i'd like to describe it is a sci-fi southern gothic gonzo crust punk story Jesus. Uh, but what is this story about uh you play as k who is a wandering crust punk who hitched a train to chicago and then out west and apparently got a sub cyborg wars out in new mexico but is returning home after her mother dies to find her brother yeah, she returns back after this five-year absence, and, you know, all these changes have happened around where uh, she grew up in Norco. I think some of them were probably, you know, seeded before she was gone, but now there's uh, a cult of Garrett's set up in the mall, more on that later, a sentient AI called Super Duck, and his newly minted cryptocurrency, getting folks to do odd jobs around the town. For quack coin. Yeah, quack jobs for quack coin, baby. Um, <laughs> and, uh... A strange man named Papa who wants to take Kay and her mom's corpse and her brother Blake into a rocket ship into space because they're de descendants of Jesus Christ. Uh, did I get that all right? Um, <laughs> I think so. <laughs> um, but yeah, so there's a lot, a lot in this game. Um, obviously, the spoiler warning is fully popped off at this point. So um, yeah, be be warned. <laughs> well, so let's talk about a little bit more about that setting. Uh, the setting that we find ourselves in in Norco. Um, there's kind of two major parts of the story. The first one, you play as Kay, 
exploring the town of Norco, trying to find out what her mother was secretly doing before she died. Um, And that's kind of those interstitials, I I think of them as, where you play as the mother, as Catherine, Mm -hmm. and she's in New Orleans running around doing odd jobs for Super Duck. Yeah, yeah, think of it as like if your uh, 50-plus-year-old mother decided to get on uh, Uber or other gig economy apps to uh, heartbreakingly pay off medical debt. Um, so, yeah, that's the type of sort of future capitalist dystopian th- theming that we're, we're talking about here. Like, it is a story steeped in desperation and last chances and just slow decay. I think that kind of desperation and decay like it's very um very common in the southern gothic uh kind of brand or genre of fiction um but i feel like the modern or the more modern takes on southern gothic uh in the last decade or 20 years or 30 years maybe um is more kind of like a capitalist take on it uh like the original southern gothic the way i kind of think of it as is um and, and you know this is all fiction and pretty lies that people tell themselves but like there was the southern aristocracy and they lived in the plantations you know on top of slavery which fucking sucks for (laughs) everything back then you know not endorsing this at all bold bold stance josh (laughs) disavowing slavery (laughs) so uh, you know uh but the idea is with these old southern gothic writers that there used to be the center of morality in the south and it was based on a crooked foundation, so it rotted out eventually, and Southern Gothic was supposed to be, you're living in that rotted out present, where things used to be good and noble, even though they really weren't, or it was like a crooked thing. So I feel like the old Southern Gothic used to be about like slavery and the aristocracy, but the modern stuff is about capitalism. Like There's these oil companies that come through, make tons of money, in Louisiana, off of the Gulf of Mexico, drilling, whatever. And then those refineries kind of wither away or they're less profitable. So they, the towns and the lives that they support are just kind of abandoned. Right. And there's that sense of desperation and desolation that pervades the landscape. Yeah, the story is really about the people that are left behind or affected by the wake of these forces that you're talking about in, in, in the modern exactly. Southern Gothic context, capitalism. Um, it re- reminds me a lot of what we talked about in Kentucky Route Zero, right? You know, this is basically a similar situation. A power company, namely Norco, uh, basically owns this town and they control everything that goes on in it. It's a place that is sort of left behind by society at large. So we don't see any countervailing or counterbalancing force against the corporation. And so they basically run the place. Yeah, there's definitely some similarities between the two games. Um, it'll be interesting to uh, kind of get over that, or it'll be interesting to go over that once we kind of lay out a little bit more about this game yeah. and then go over some of the finer points. Absolutely. We don't want to, this game deserves more than a comparison to others because I I don't really think of this as, you know, the second KRZ or the second Disco Elysium. It's the first Norco. It's it's got its own, I think I read that somewhere online, but that is, it is very much its own thing Um, because it's got such a really interesting and keen eye on the future. You know, it's talking about, I I said near future sci-fi, but it's got like, cryptocurrency stuff going on references to QAnon people um 
you know. Oh, I don't think this game is in the future at all. It's just like <laughs> a different present. A different present. Yeah, I mean, even the years. You know, it's not like they're saying this game takes place in 2052. Uh, this game takes place in like XY41 or something like that. Like the whole system is different. It's a different reality, but also like the time is now mm. just with robots and more advanced AI. Yeah, that some some sort of key uh, story technology that comes up is yeah, as you mentioned, there's sentient AI. There's the ability to download your brain into a head drive, which is a very key thing. Basically, your ability to download a consciousness onto hardware, and uh, you know, an ad-supported hardware. <laughs> yeah, ad-supported. There's also more banal, um, uh, you know, references to you know near future technology where the first npc you run into troy basically is a guy who used to work at a gas station and had his job automated away by a kiosk so you know uh, echoes of real life in here as well i feel like the um way the developers went about this was they took a look at some of the current trends they were seeing and they cranked them up not to 11 but to like 22 <laughs> yeah, and I like how, despite the fact that they're cranked to 22, it's all presented extremely matter-of-factly. Like, it's presented in, like, a sci-fi version of magical realism, basically. Like, and of course the uh, sentient AI minted its own cryptocurrency and is getting people to do its bidding. <laughs> <laughs> it's all, like, you know, like, duh. <laughs> um, what, what else would you do? Um, well, you know, it wasn't just, like, the sci-fi kind of uh, embellishments they had around uh, but even like I feel like the characters were very well written too like thinking about those Catherine interstitials there's a very effective moment of storytelling they had where you play the first I don't know hour two hours of this game as Kay the uh, prodigal daughter coming back to New Orleans and you choose things for her like um it does this kind of twine style dialogue choices when you're going back through your childhood home and you're trying to figure out like oh here's me re recollecting why i left this town in the first place and like your brother blake he was heartbroken by it and you can either be like i'm trying to comfort him or eh, he'll get over it whatever <laughs> uh, so you choose very different options based off of that and i kind of played like a more like my crustiest punk imaginable that I could imagine for Kay um, and had her being kind of like, screw this town, I'm out of here and everything. There's a pretty affecting moment where after you spend the first two hours as Kay, you play as Catherine, where you can start to access the phone. Uh, you can pull up her phone and you can pull up text messages and you can see her text conversation with Kay. And what I saw was like this whole text thing of like a worried mom trying to reach out to her daughter. Yeah, completely one-sided. Like, yeah, she's like, I'm in New Mexico. Talk to you later. Yep. And Catherine's like, I'm dying. Yeah. I'd like to talk to you. And I'm like, man, I was an asshole before an yeah. hour ago when I played as Kay. Yeah, no, it, it is really, it, I like how it sort of throws those choices back at you in unexpected ways and, you know, shifts perspective in, in that type of way really interestingly. This game does use perspective in extremely powerful ways, not just with sort of showing you the other side of your decisions by letting you embody the mother Catherine after uh, initially setting up her daughter Kay, but also in the fact that it's written in the perspective of a local, and that is always front and center. Despite being away for a while, your character, Kay, has a history with this place and its people. And when those perspective shifts happen suddenly and without warning over to 
to Catherine, you're still a local and you have a different context. You have the old, like more historical view of the area and what's happened there. Um, it's just, it's really good writing and it shows you so many different dimensions of the place despite being such a pretty, you know, scant runtime. Yeah, like this game is not a long game by any by any means. I think it took me five, six, six seven, seven hours. hours. Yeah, something like that. Between five it's and seven. Very, but the writing is so tight in the game. And um, another thing I want to talk about, uh, like before Brian talked about this, I heard some other people talking about Norco too. But one of the things that turned me off from the game originally, where I wasn't trying to jump, I wasn't jumping into this uh, head first, was actually the pix- pixel art. I saw some screenshots of the pixel art and especially some of the portraits they did and they're stylized in a way but not a way I thought looked very good like they weren't going for realism with the portraits whatsoever and I think that really does a disservice to the art if you're thinking about it that way. The environments on this game are gorgeous and there are so damn many of them. Yeah, it's a beautiful game. It's very painterly. It looks like sort of a forgotten like LucasArts or Sierra game from the 90s or something like that. Um, and it, man, like I, I can't get enough. Like every new scene was something I was delighted to see. Um, absolutely gorgeous game. But going back to the writing, I, I want to mention that this game has some incredibly purple prose uh, moments. You know, they're always going to, or they, they will bring out like, I don't know, very heavy dialogue in a very stylized voice uh, a lot of times. Like, this game is not afraid to flex its vocabulary, which, uh, you know, appeals to me as a a nerd. But, um, you know, it might turn some people off. But regardless, I thought it was great. Yeah, the the prose can be florid at times. It definitely gets very descriptive, very evocative. I think it works out great. Um, there's another game we played recently in Castadon recently called Caves of Cud. Ah, uh, yes. That also had very florid prose as well. Mm-hmm. And I feel like you've used the term purple prose with both of these hmm. games. And I think there's a difference. Uh, purple prose originally refers to like 19th century authors who are just putting so many words there on the book. <laughs> And it's seen as a bad thing in books because, like, those words are preventing you from getting to the next, like, the next action or the next thing that's happening. It's filler. Um, Yeah, it's filler in a way, or a roadblock even. And in a game like Norco, I could see that people would be um, turned off by that a little bit because you do have to read through everything and you have to, like, go through the dialogues and get through things. Whereas with Caves of Cud, it was an optional thing. You didn't have to read anything for Caves of Cud. You'd be mad not to, but like it wasn't, <laughs> um, it wasn't ever anything forced on you. So I think that's kind of a, a difference in the purpleness of the prose. I, I yeah, I totally agree with you there, and I, I guess that also you taught me something about purple prose as being sort of a. Um, a negative thing to say about something. I, I'd never thought of it that way. And maybe that's just my lack of understanding, but I always just thought of purple prose meaning something that's extremely elaborate or eloquent. Um, and that's just my, my misunderstanding probably, but I have no, uh, gripes with the writing in this game. I think it's, uh, often very beautiful 
And I also think it can be really funny. Like it, it sometimes just totally abandons the eloquence and evocativeness for something like describing a guy eating a bad hot dog and having to take a shit or, you know, like launching a cat into space without warning or beating a monkey, a stuffed monkey in a staring contest. Like this game has so many great funny moments in it too. This was one of the games that I've laughed out loud at. You know, no acronym, but actually just something caught me so by surprise. This game does have such a sharp sense of humor, which you need if you're going for a game with the same theme as this. Like, nobody can live in total despair and desolation all the time. If you make life, you make humor. That's true. And it's a nice reminder that, like, moments of joy can be found in even the bleakest settings. And, you know, this game could have just been, like, a meditation on, like, the desolation and downfall of this poor town. But there's, like, clearly a lot going on here. There's people with social lives. There's people that miss your character Kay when she comes back. There's people that are so glad to see her. Uh, There's people that will, as we said, immediately make you laugh. Um, And there's people that will make you laugh after you get to know them, which is also important. It's just, it's a really nice study of uh, characters as well as of um, just a setting. This game definitely had some stellar characters. Uh, We've talked about Kay and Catherine a little bit here already. Um, But going back to Norco as Kay, as you say, like people know you, you have a history there already. And what I kind of liked about going to the bar, if you remember that scene, yeah, where you meet your dad's old working buddies, and you guys have different histories of your father, and seeing them clash over the over there, and it's not something that was like, you know, like open your your codex and find out some new information over here. You actually got to see these. Uh, these clashing ideas of who your father was play out in a conversation. Really great written dialogue here. Yeah, it's especially great because it you're getting several different perspectives, but then you're also getting the invented perspective about your father, Blue, from Catherine, your mother, who in a previous scene you had... Uh, made a decision on what for what memories she should keep and upload to her head drive for her family. I'd forgotten about that. So you're not only getting conflicting stories from the people in the bar, you're getting conflicting stories from yourself, uh, depending on what you chose to preserve about that relationship. And it's just like, <laughs> I guess it points out like the inherent flaw in like a snapshot version of a consciousness is that it can't possibly... Uh, you know, barring any unknown technology we're not yet aware of, like, it can't possibly detail out every aspect of every person that you've ever come in contact with. Um, And even if it could be an exact replica of your brain, it's still only going to present your perspective. So, and, you know, as we all know, memories are fallible. (laughs) (laughs) Even when um, uploaded to a head drive. That's right. Um, but yeah, so we, we talked about the bar, uh, folk, and I think you were mentioning, uh, I'd imagine probably Keith, who is, uh, he wants to start a news, a news site, Keith's Corner. Uh, he's just a QAnon guy. Like, he is the QAnon guy in, in the story. <laughs> he just wants the truth, man. Yeah. Just and- the truth. I especially love when he, like, rolls up on the mall where the Garretts are chilling out, you know, Garretts being our our cult of of the game, and he says, 
textbook adren- adrenochrome harvesting facility right here. Owner's definitely a pervert. <laughs> <laughs> like I said, uh, they take the current trends and crank them up. Yeah, it's it's pretty funny stuff. But um, also, like, like oh boy, like just sort of like shaking your head stuff too, because you know it has its uh, analog and reality. But the other person at the bar who knows your father is LeBlanc, who started off as just a real shit heel for me, but ended up being one of my favorite characters in the game. Oh, no kidding. Uh, LeBlanc is a private eye who's kind of like your neighbor. Um, like his office window overlooks your backyard. And he's like, oh, yeah, I watched you all the time growing up. I'm not creepy. <laughs> the, and hilariously, I watched you all the time from my window right next to my toilet. <laughs> so I watched you all the time while I was using the toilet. Um, yeah. To be fair, you find his office later and his <laughs> toilet's like right next to his desk. It's not a separate room. This man's not in classy digs whatsoever. No. And you say he's um, a private eye who's your neighbor. I think he's your neighbor who tells you he's a private eye. <laughs> but <laughs> he's a great character, uh, mostly because despite the fact that he's not going to even tell you you know what the person who robbed your house took from it without you buying him a couple beers and a uh, box of fries first um he will actually later on accompany you if you request it in full clown makeup to help you recover your brother so you know oh, i missed this <laughs> i saw the clown makeup in his office and i thought it was just like a hobby of his no, so if you continue to interact with that clown makeup despite his protestations and saying, hey, are you sure? Things are going to get, you know, or do you feel like clowning around? Um, you know, you could see that as a threat or something, but I kept going and he said, all right, time to go to clown town or whatever. And he puts the clown makeup on. And after that, he becomes a totally different guy. Like if people ask him about it, he's very insistent that he likes the way he looks in it and it's fine. And, uh, you know, he's like, he's just a really confident person in that clown makeup. Much better than he is as like a barfly. Man, that's, I feel like I got to replay this now and get the clown <laughs> LeBlanc. Clown LeBlanc is the character of the game for me, for sure. He's a, he's a stand-up dude. As much as a guy who spies on kids in his next door yard while taking a dump can be. But, um, you know. You know, I think people... that just goes to show like. There's a narrative story arc to this game. There's, you know, you're solving a mystery, classic adventure game sort of stuff, but the narrative is almost secondary. Like, they're not afraid to have your, uh, you know, your side character put on clown makeup, and then they have that portrait in the top left of the screen. It's always <laughs> going to show them in clown makeup. That's I right. know because in my game, Dallas started wearing the ridiculous bolo tie yes. that his grandson got him. Like, they're not afraid to just like go crazy with that. I don't feel like that was their primary intention with this game was telling the story of Kay and Catherine. I think it was trying to tell the story of Norco, and you know it's um. Uh, satellite city or uh, regional center of gravity new orleans yeah it's basically um you walk into the story and a bunch of dominoes are set up and it's up to you to decide which one to push over and you know that'll in turn have ramifications for what continues to go on in the story but um i agree that i don't think they set out to have this end in a specific way that's evidenced by the multiple endings of course but it's also evidence in how you get there you know, man in clown makeup. 
at all. <laughs> yeah, you, are you marching into the ending with a guy as a clown at your side or just uh, another dude? As, as we mentioned, the characters can take on a lot of different aspects, and I think some of them um, we can, uh, you know, affect throughout the course of the story, but others are sort of predetermined, and I think the one that strikes most uh, to the heart with this for me is Million. You mentioned Million up top, your robot household uh, companion, and uh, she starts off as sort of your main sidekick. You know, she's the one who's accompanying you. I'm saying she because they... They give her sort of a, a feminine affect, I guess, in the game, but I guess it's a They bag. give her feminine pronouns, too. They refer to her as she. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I guess that's probably where I picked that up then. Um, but yeah, so uh, she eventually will end up turning on you because of her... She has... I guess she has spyware, right? Um, uh, I guess <laughs> she... <laughs> in the most literal sense possible. Um, so Million is produced by... Uh, what's the... Uh, St. Clair... St. Clair Robotics, Correct. a like the world's foremost uh, robotics company, and your your mom Catherine took in Million, um, as LeBlanc tells you later, as a kind of like taking in this fugitive android as a way to kind of make up for how poorly she treated Blue, your father. Um, but this was all a long game played by St. Clair Robotics. That's right. So what, what uh, she ended up being sort of a deep cover spy. Um, I think it's worth mentioning her appearance is totally stunning in this game. Like she basically has a normal human metallic body, not normal human, um, but metallic body with her head being a constellation of stars, um, which is just a really striking image. Um, and that's, uh, that's how she presents. But uh, to your point, Josh, uh, the long game here is that she was a spy to sort of figure out what Catherine, who was a researcher, um, was working on. Yeah, in the plot of the game, um, Catherine is nosing around the swamp because she's one of those like secret secret detective people i guess you could tell she's like a crypto geographer (laughs) like she's trying to figure out what's going on around here that's not quite right and in uh doing so as she's nosing around the swamp she discovers this floating light that seems to like her and appreciate her and everybody in this game wants this light yeah, for some reason, Super Duck, the sentient AI that we were talking about, who basically controls the entire region through a network of uh, mechanical and biological, um, you know, systems. Uh, weirdly, it's like a living internet. Um, mil- you know, Super Duck is the main person who's t- sort of pursuing Catherine's research and interest in this strange light, and also the person who eventually um, conscripts. K to find it and deliver it to her. Superduck is this really interesting AI concept um, about how, I guess uh, the way, I I really liked it, Uh, but like the way they described Superduck was a AI consciousness existing in like radio waves and electrical signals 
um, going between the roots of the trees in the bayou, in between the flocks of birds. I mean, um, there's some theories of computation out there that you can compute on anything you want. Uh, you can build a computer out of marbles. You can build a computer out of Minesweeper. You can build a computer out of Magic the Gathering. Like, you can build a computer out of anything. You can and they build kind one of imagine... out of Minecraft. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, with the redstone and everything, definitely Turing complete. Uh, but they imagine this AI sentient network existing over biological and electrical networks distributed across the region around New Orleans. Um, and getting powerful too uh and being able to interact with other people by paying them quack coin for quack jobs which is what uh Catherine's doing the whole time and it's not like she's aligned with this ai or anything it's just it's another gig app it's another uber it's the best way to get quick money i mean so many people are you know uh tricked or hoodwinked into these sort of get rich quick schemes in america whether it's mlms or crypto or what have you um but you know when... i feel like it wasn't even that far like they had an uber driver literally talking about i'm gonna join quack coin it sounds easier than this uh than this uh rideshare gig i've got going on <laughs> yeah and yet at the same time like basically what is super duck doing to Catherine, but sending her all over town doing odd jobs so yeah, I mean, it, it, you know, it's shitty all the way down. Uh, I think that's kind of what we're getting at here with this sort of gig economy parallel. But um, Super Duck isn't interesting for another reason in that Duck is a real person. Duck was Catherine's friend. And the origination of Super Duck, as I understand it, is because he had a faulty head drive. And that head drive instance of his consciousness uh, just sort of warped and went feral. And now it is this thing with nodes and tendrils across the entire bayou area. really cool characterization there especially you're talking to duck about super duck uh and you're trying to figure out does he know anything helpful here or anything useful or like i talked about when you uh first go to the catherine chapters and you pull out the phone and you see the conversations you can see her conversation with duck and he's just like stay away from that damn thing it's crazy it's gonna ruin you just keep as far away as you can. Yeah. No, there's uh, there's all kinds of sort of strange uh, sort of half-given uh, messages in this game. And, you know, um, I think one character or a couple characters who exemplify this to me as sort of other mysterious aspects of the world are Pawpaw, who is sort of like a weird, strange hobo prophet who thinks you're a descendant of Jesus Christ. Hobo Prophet is a good way to describe him. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, Lucky, who is an eco-terrorist or just sort of a guy who likes blowing up shit, uh, depending <laughs> on how you look at it. But um, basically, Lucky is uh, a guy that hung out by the gas station who you eventually conscript to help you break into S.H.I.E.L.D. Uh, via his savviness with explosives. And savvy he is. Uh, yeah, the... You know, there's some light adventure game puzzles around breaking into the S.H.I.E.L.D. refinery. Um, 
It was interesting seeing Lucky as a character because it was someone kind of striking back against S.H.I.E.L.D. Like, yeah. So many characters in the game were just like, we can't do anything about it. This is the, you know, this is S.H.I.E.L.D. They're powerful. They own the town. They're a multinational corporation. What can we do? And Lucky's like, ah, I just want to blow some stuff up. Yeah, it's interesting you say that he was striking back at S.H.I.E.L.D., but I don't think he's striking it at anyone in particular. I think, you know, even if you if you talk to Lucky about, like, why he does what he does and wants to blow up S.H.I.E.L.D. pipelines and things like that, it's his answer is just because he likes seeing things explode. Like, he is not interested in harming S.H.I.E.L.D. In fact, if you interrogate that, he says, I have no quarrel with S.H.I.E.L.D. They create jobs in the area. It's like, oh, buddy. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> he serves a more pure cause than yeah. anti-capitalism. I don't know what that is, but okay. <laughs> Pyromania. Fire. Yeah, exactly. The simple things in life. Yeah. So you, you get all these interesting characters who are helping you sort of, um, you know, accomplish your goals of in, making your way into increasingly labyrinthine places where your brother Blake could maybe be being held or, you know, could be staying or lying low or whatever. Um, that's kind of the, you know, Blake is a character in this game, which since we're on characters, we might as well talk about him. But I think he's the least character character in the entire thing. Like you just hear about him. You barely interact with him throughout the entire thing except for the very end, and he's more of a, a MacGuffin than a character, I think. Blake is actually characterized by an emoticon, not even an emoji, but like <laughs> the old-school 90s text smiley faces. Um, Kay is characterized as a frowny face. I'm sorry, as a neutral face. Yep, neutral face. Kay is yeah. characterized as a neutral face, just kind of like blank, emotionless, and Blake is characterized as a frowny face. And this is pasted over his face when you finally meet him. Yeah, it's weird how... I'm not exactly sure what this is serving. Like, showing um, the siblings and children of Catherine just as, like, emojis rather than as, you know, um, depicted human faces. Like, I don't know what they were trying to say with that. Maybe it was trying to, like, allow it to be more of a self-insert for for Kay, given that that's your protagonist, but um, it's definitely an interesting artistic choice. My reading of that situation is that um, they were trying to portray Kay as cold as possible, like she didn't have any emotions whatsoever, mm. and the way she saw her brother was just this sad sack of frowns. Like, he hmm. doesn't have a face. He's just a frown. He's the embodiment of sadness, um, which you could say about a lot of people in this game, so I don't know why he got singled out. But, <laughs> um, Familiarity yeah. breeds contempt is what I hear. Yeah. You mentioned uh, some of the adventure game mechanics a little bit ago, and I think... Um, aside from the characters, you know, one thing that this game allows you to do is a great deal of exploration. You know, you're not always on the straight and narrow, so to speak. Uh, a lot of this game is sort of poking around in the neighborhood of Norco and then at other points throughout the locales of New Orleans. And, you know, the, the way you do this is going to be familiar to anybody who's ever played a point-and-click um, adventure game. To me, 
uh, I think it was always quite fun to sort of explore the areas and get a new sort of location piece of pixel art to show me what they they thought uh, alternate future New Orleans looked like. <laughs> I mentioned before I didn't like the portraiture that the developers did, but I loved their location pixel art, uh, and there was an insane amount of it too. Like, yeah. I'm guessing at least a hundred different locations, all of them very well rendered, yeah. uh, with like different little birds flying in the background or ways to make the scene feel a little more realistic and alive. Like this game really did have fantastic pixel art that really came through in these kind of, I don't know if you want to call them landscape pieces or not, but they're landscape. Yeah, there's landscapes, there's cityscapes, there's um, just just an incredible variety of like palettes and colors and moods that they're able to portray and honestly this is like the best pixel art i've seen since we did if on a winter's night uh, mm, uh for high travelers praise. yeah like this is really good stuff um it's in the pixel art hall of fame for my book mm -hmm. and that made exploration such a joy i mean between like seeing a new location and getting to see some more characters or writing or see what crazy shit goes down when you see a new place very compelling yeah i guess so if um i, I totally agree and I, I think if exploration is one of the sort of adventure gamey mechanics you have here then the the other ones that i am clocking are you know our sort of light inventory system where you can sometimes rub an object against another object to make something happen uh, you know in typical adventure game fashion <laughs> now brian i know that uh your child is about year and a half now and my child's just turning one and <laughs> right i feel like these kids are born adventure gamers right here <laughs> that's true every every uh toddler is basically an adventure gamer um they'd be able to beat <laughs> monkey island in no time flat for sure um but yeah i i don't know i mean like the light inventory system i don't think it was like particularly additive but it didn't like remove anything from the game it served as a nice sort of like sprinkling of do stuff between all of the writing and beautiful artwork that were probably the more centerpiece of this game right like that that was at least my opinion i think they wanted to make sure that this could still have its gaminess rather than just sort of being a a point and click version of a walking simulator I think the thing that worked for me very well about the inventory system is that it was so simple. I don't think I ever had more than two or three items in my inventory. And when I got an item, I knew what I was supposed to do with it. Exactly. There was never like a mystery like, oh, I guess I picked up this fish hook. I wonder what I'll use that for later. It's always It was always a very apparent use um and i yeah. appreciated that like maybe i'll try rubbing the fish hook on the wine bottle maybe that'll <laughs> solve my puzzle none of that like adventure game logic here right you don't have to shoot a piece of cheese with a gun to make it into swiss cheese um, <laughs> but you know they they did also have another uh mechanical aspect in this game which i found to be completely silly which is their their combat mechanics um I don't know yeah. why this was included in the game. Um, I guess it's just sort of acknowledging that, like, sometimes violence is a part of life in a shitty New Orleans town. But I don't know. I guess it's part of life everywhere. 
I'm really trying to think about what they were trying to say or achieve with the combat system and kind of coming up blank. Like, yeah, I, I agree. Why? It seemed pretty silly to me in the moment. And like looking back on it, I don't think the memorable moments I had with this game did not revolve around the combat system. Um, it was always just sort of, it, you know what it really was, Josh? It was a gate. It was a gate uh, to say like, you're not going to get past the entrance to uh, shield refinery unless you either teamed up with um, the guy or lucky who could explode his way in or uh, if you disabled something via hacking and drew the guards away right basically combat was a, a way to say you need to do some uh, light immersive sim puzzling before you can make your way to the next part of this game <laughs> puzzling is even a strong verb for what you are expected to do there yeah, it, it, but like I said, it's it's a it's a lock, and the game is asking you to open with one of like two to three keys, and that's really the only reason I could see for it existing. Like, I don't think uh, Kay's combat efficacy is a big part of her character, right? You know, like uh. the fact that she can beat down Troy was very satisfying, but I don't think it says a lot about her. <laughs> um, I actually feel that if they had the Troy fight. And then they never had combat again. That would have been like the perfect amount. That would have been better because it would have been funnier. <laughs> <laughs> Just you have one combat scene and it's you beating up the high school bully. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm thinking like uh, shield refinery. You could gatekeep that. Just by having Lucky in your party, like, oh, he throws a grenade, the drones are gone. Or like the uh, rocket ship fight at the end. Oh, K enters into a hallucinogenic state and starts wailing around. That's the best defense I can have of the combat system is that rocket ship climax kind of thing, which wasn't additive. No, no, I, I agree. It sort of served as like a reprise of some earlier stuff, but that's about all you can all you can give it. Um I think there are other aspects of the sort of non-exploratory, you know, adventure gaminess that I liked. That, like, the navigating around the bayou and the boat thing, uh, you know, using the map. Like, some of the puzzling that didn't rely on the inventory system in the game is quite good. Um, I, I really enjoyed the sort of, like, hunt for the various AR objects to get you into the, the Garrett stronghold. Um, <laughs> I think... Yeah, basically the mall, Garrett. The Garrett, Garrett stronghold. Yeah, I mean the Garretts or the the leader of the Garretts, John, I think as his name was. He created Kenner John at Kenner Mall. Yeah, he created a um, like a self guided tour app to teach you what it meant to be a Garrett. Uh, basically, it was like the the founding text of the incels, I guess. I don't know, um, <laughs> but. <laughs> It, it's a it, you know the, the game does interesting things with like the phone and ar and like how you could use a phone to do a variety of weird little puzzles the phone did have some interesting apps on it like we talked about um the chat app before they also have the quack job app mm -hmm. which is like your i guess the uber equivalent of working for super duck mm -hmm. um they also had this you know this cult based ar thing where you just kind of wave your phone around and you can find <laughs> hidden sculptures it was that was fun you know a uh, nice interesting uh, they 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 had some good narrative beats 
with that app, which I appreciated. Um, but I think we got to talk a little bit more about about the Garrets. Yeah, yeah. Now that we've brought them up, it's it's hard to stay away. The Garrets, um, they're, uh, let's see, uh, a cult of young teenage boys and men who dress like... Uh, I guess Target Best or Buy. Best, yeah, Best Buy employees. employees. Yeah, they're they're Nerd Squad guys, and uh, they all have the same haircut, and they have uh, a leader who just sort of you know slowly but surely snowballs all the dipshit conservative young men into a strip mall to, uh, I guess, radicalize and eventually get them to go to space. Yeah, yeah, something and like build that. a rocket ship as yeah. you do, as you do. Uh, the backstory <laughs> is that Kenner John, as he is known. Uh, is a internet commenter who commented on sports pages until he attracted the following of one Garrett living around New Orleans. And then this Garrett had friends who also became Garretts, so all of them could have the same name. Except I thought this was really funny when you go to the mall and you're like, the original Garrett has had his name revoked and he is now known as Gooch. That's right. He's just Gooch. <laughs> <laughs> and he's banned to being like parking lot patrol. Um, but there's like this whole, this whole, yeah, like kind of incel young men like you talked about. Uh, and I thought one of the really interesting things about the narrative of the Garrets is you had this mall full of Garrets with Kenner John as the cult leader. But you also have Papa coming in as this like, drug dealer slash corrupter <laughs> who's right. coming in and like handing out drugs left and right to these guys being like ah oh, you're fine back here you don't need to really pay attention to this cult that's right he and then the, th- the hilarious thing about that is like over time he turns out to be sort of the actual linchpin of the whole thing and uh co-opts the garrets away from their founder uh, for the end of the game, which I found deeply satisfying because obviously the the leader guy was a clown. Um, but, you know, <laughs> Papa's not much better, but whatever. At least he's not that guy. <laughs> it was an interesting ending because after you take a boat through the ghost bayous mm. with all its adventure game puzzles and mechanics over there, um, you get to this rocket ship that the Garrets have been building for like two, three years now, um, and they are going to take it into space. And that's when Papa stages his coup and takes, uh, kills Kenner John, buries his head in the swamp, and uh, wants to abduct you and your family and take them off into space. Yeah, because he thinks that for some reason your like lineage dates back to uh, Jesus Christ, because religion is also a thing that has been pervasive throughout this game's milieu as well. Um, we haven't really mentioned that to to date, but they do treat sort of the prominence of like Christianity and religion and like how fanatic some folks can get in the rural south or the even you know just the south in general um or anywhere in the united states for that matter (laughs) but um it's a definite presence in this game this is maybe you know bringing in some personal experiences as i am bound to do by this point in the podcast uh but (laughs) new orleans was definitely more catholic Hmm. than a lot of 
I mean, even, you know, we went to Boston right after New Orleans, and if I had to say which city was more Catholic, I'd go with New Orleans. Hmm. That's interesting to hear. Um, you know, I guess I always sort of figured that it would be like a pretty heavily Catholic presence, given its lineage from like uh, French and Spanish influences, you know, obviously a very early port, you know, um, missionary presence from way back in the day, and who knows, you know, how that's propagated throughout history, but um, I guess that makes sense to me. One of the things about that, too, is especially during the rocket ship, like, Brian, me and you grew up Catholic, yep. you know, Catholic schools, the whole nine yards and all that, uh, but Catholicism definitely is about, uh, a lot of it's about ritual, a lot of it's about mystery. It's about the large cathedrals, the expansive spaces, and the rocket ship was uh, very much designed with this in mind. Yeah, it even looks like a church from the inside, like once you're in there. Like, there's um, a lot of soaring ceilings. It's very vertically oriented. Um, so I, I agree with you on, on that. You know, the fact that this game basically culminates in the techno-dystopian version of a church kind of makes sense. The techno-cult church. Yeah, techno-cult church, basically. Um, but no, I'm, I'm, I'm with you on that. And the Garrett's definitely sort of serve as like... Uh, a cult, but with an undertone of like religious fanaticism and um, stuff like that, uh, as you know, you would probably expect given like the um, sort of right wingy radical waters that they seem to be swimming in. I think one of the fun puzzles in this game was that when you went through the Kenner Mall in one of the Catherine interstitials you had to convince one of the new Garrett's who was guarding the door that, you know, your cult brothers, they're really kind of like assholes and jerks, <laughs> and you should just let me through the door. And that so was then big. you use the uh, voice memo app on the phone, and you record all the shit that the Garrett's say about the new Garrett. And he's like, ah, fuck this, I'm out of here. Yeah, basically you go around and like um, spill the beans that all of these dudes actually hate each other and that none of them are taking this seriously. And eventually, one by one, they all just sort of peel off and give up. And, and that's how you make your way through their quote unquote uh, inner sanctum. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, it's uh, I'm sure there's a commentary in there uh, that I, uh, you know, I. <laughs> I just think it honestly it was just very funny. Like a lot of people that are doing this are just pretending to do it for social clout. Um, or a lot of them have their own other reasons, right? I mean, a lot of these characters are escaping their really horrid reality through drugs, video games, or the idea of uh, off-world travel. So, <laughs> you know, like, um, you know, honestly, let me not cast the first stone. <laughs> <laughs> who us with our video game hobbies i was gonna say uh as we sit here sipping beers and talking about video games i'm not exactly liking the picture that i'm looking at in the mirror <laughs> Yeah, so as we're uh, sort of 
uh, looking around the, the mall of our, our life, uh, trying to ignore all the video games and drugs, uh, we're trying to organize our thoughts, and this game provides a very interesting way of doing that, uh, which is a mind map. Um, this reminded me a lot of like Disco Elysium's Thought Cabinet, except that it was more for story conveyance and less for mechanical advancement. Basically, this is like a journal that's keeping track of all the stuff that's going on in the game. And that's the key difference. Like, this wasn't a skill tree you'd advance through in any ways. This was a way to connect the dots. Um, if we're looking for video game analogies, this is closer to the Outer Wilds um, sketch... What, what would you call it? Like, I, I think of like the... Uh, corkboard. It's the a corkboard. The corkboard with the red string between the different things. And you're right. Outer Wilds is a way better logline for this than Disco. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, it would have like, uh, it would have Kay or Blake or Catherine, or it would have Shield Corporation or Million or Lucky or Papa slash the Ditchman, like any character or major uh, plot point you come across. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They have a space in the mind map during the K chapters, and you can kind of interrogate each of these portions. Like you can talk about. Laura St. Clair, you can think about her and you have several different options of what to think about, like how she's uh, uh, working for S.H.I.E.L.D. Corporation and she's the regional director, or how she's been devoting resources to tracking your mother, or things like that. Or how and, she's not trusted by her father, the founder of the company, and everybody thinks she's addicted. Or the board of the company. <laughs> yeah, like... Um, when you learn new things in the game, it goes on the mind map under its relevant character, and it adds a little more dialogue that you can visit or revisit and, and it's, find it's, out what the state is. Exactly, and it's usually pretty revelatory, and I like the fact that despite all of it being true, you're only allowed to reveal about 50% of it. So your facts uh, in a given playthrough, um, while... Not necessarily all being universally different, give you a very specific perspective for that that game that you're playing. Ah, I haven't heard about this. Yeah, so as you're as you're choosing those items, like you don't get all of them, right? Like you can choose between different entries in that mind map, right? And it it highlights like what you want to read rather than what um, necessarily oh. you don't get you don't get all of them, right? Like you can only choose one of the two entries that says. Um, uh, Laurel Saint, what, what's her name? Laura Saint Clair. Yeah, Laura, Laura Saint Clair is, you know, one competent CEO, or I don't think this is exactly how it played out, or two distrusted by the board, or something like that. Um, or maybe it's two different things, like Laura Saint Clair is one looking into my mother, or two distrusted by her board. You know, so which way do you want to get that information, or what what information do you want to get or learn more about? So, and both of those are true. But you only get to reveal partial uh, partial facts here. Yeah, it's, it it colors your perspective, and it depends on what you prioritize as wanting to see about a given character, which I think is a good way to do it. You know, it leaves some things up to mystery, but lets you sort of determine what you want to talk about. I kind of feel like that's one of the low key themes of this game is that you have a perspective as a character, and it's only a perspective. Like you don't have an omniscient, all-knowing view everywhere. You can't know the whole objective truth of what happened. Like, 
the bar talks about your father blue and your different perspectives or choosing what you want more where you want to get more information or choosing how Kay played things out in the past. It's only ever a perspective and and it's never the whole truth. Absolutely. I mean, this is put to a super fine point when you're deciding what memories uh, Catherine gets to keep in her head drive for her children to eventually discover. Um, Damn, that's deep. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking about how old games used to do something like this. And I'm thinking about Morrowind. Like when you clicked on the entry for Skuma, it would tell you like the dictionary definition for Skuma. But it doesn't like say anything about how your character views Skuma, right? Um, mm-hmm. I feel like this game is more interested in like if you, you know, in your mind map found Skuma or whatever, maybe this game it's meth <laughs> or something like that. Um, you know, it would it would probably say like meth is and then you'd get to choose either um, a real good time, but uh, lets me it makes me make bad decisions or like the reason my best friend died and you get to choose one or the other. Um, and uh, this game just it always like is going to just take it that one extra level to make it personal. And I think that really helps it. And thinking from kind of like a games in general perspective, like that's something that games can offer that other media can't is the ability to personalize the character to that, oh, that path. Like, am I a party animal and did my best friend die of this? Like, you choose which river to go down. Yeah, and it, it allows you to sort of build the experience to the pers- to to what you want to get out of the story. And I don't think this game is nebulous enough that you can just look at it and get whatever you want out of it, like some sort of magic eye. But it's leading you down a path with a few very specific endpoints. And I think it's been carefully constructed enough that all of those can be meaningful given the setting that's built. I agree with that, uh, especially because it focuses so much on the setting. Like I mentioned before, I don't think the narrative was the end goal. Like the ending wasn't the end goal. It wanted to tell a story about a place more than it wanted to tell a story. Yeah, it wanted to like tell the story of the flavor of a world. This is basically like as close as we get to like a source book, the game. <laughs> I would read more source books like this. Absolutely. You and me both. Uh, speaking of games with stellar source books, uh, maybe we should talk a little bit about, you know, where this game fits in the, you know, recent narrative game pantheon, because I feel like this genre has had a bit of a renaissance in the past few years. You know, we've obviously made a few references to Kentucky Route Zero. Um, everyone who's a longer time listener of the podcast knows we went uh, bananas over Disco Elysium. And I feel like Norco is set to take its place among these as stellar narrative experiences in gaming. Absolutely. Uh, fantastic narrative experience. One of those games that's not quite like anything you've ever played before. And I know you and me, we play we play a few video games. Yeah, we've been known to. <laughs> <laughs> I would say if we're doing a compare and contrast, we talked about the kind of Southern Gothic theme with Kentucky Route Zero and with Norco, mm. I would say the difference between those two th- games in terms of theme is that 
Kentucky Route Zero wanted to tell a story about like capitalism and the American dream and those those big things over there. Norco told a story about those things, but it wasn't the goal to tell the, that story. It was to embody the place. It was to show off that geography. I would agree with that in the, in the goal. Like, I agree with you about what the overarching goal was. But I think uh, I disagree in that um, Norco is not uh, prioritizing a view on capitalism is what it's doing, because I do think that that's a big part of what Norco's trying to do. But I think it's different than how, like, say, Kentucky Route Zero did it. I think Kentucky Route Zero, um, as I uh, stated in my three-word review, I believe, is more about, like, hope and how to traverse sort of the encroaching oppression of, you know, these corporate powers and things like that. Whereas I think Norco is more about finding ways to exist once it's already happened like Hmm. um, there's way more history of shittiness in norco and there's just there's there's no sort of revolutionary thought about how can we exist outside of this system it's about how can we exist within this system (laughs) Hmm. it's an interesting thought and you mentioned that the eco-terrorist lucky isn't even portrayed as like a man of um, an idealist, an ideological kind of person. He just wants to blow shit up, and Norco has all the shit. Right. Yeah. It, if if you're uh, a hammer, everything looks like a nail, and if you're uh, a eco or a if hand you're a, grenade, <laughs> if you're an if you're a terrorist, and the only thing around is an ecological destroyer, then everything becomes eco terrorism to you. Um, mm-hmm. So. Yeah, it's just, I think there's just like less of a perspective in this game about like, and and maybe I'm just bringing in 2022 vision to this, but there's, it seems to me that there's a lot less of like the escape valve that something like a Kentucky Route Zero or, or even a Disco Elysium had. Like, at the end of that game, there was at least like uh, Harry sort of becoming in some cases given your choices like a good cop that could go on and try and like do good work hopefully but i don't know like the system just seems too far gone in norco like there's no way anybody in the story is getting out alive you know the way i kind of see norco is like they're cranking those current trends to 22 to illuminate those current trends and make them something less obvious or less taken for granted or ignored even because it's just such a part of our daily reality but just amplifying them to the point where they cannot be ignored and i guess in that way it's probably a pretty effective message right like it's showing you this is your future if we don't act like to that to that end it is like I guess, a piece of revolutionary um, art, I suppose, because it is saying, this is what awaits you if we don't do something. I think part of that, uh, I don't disagree with that, but I think part of that has to be tempered with the hyper-locality of the region. Um, Like, we were in New Orleans in 2020, and people would still tell us stories of 
Katrina and the damage that it wrought on the city. Uh, there was a very affecting sequence in the game talking about the three times that Kay's house flooded. And it was going to talk about the fourth time it flooded, too. And that everybody just kind of gave up on the town and nothing happened. Like, uh, I don't know if you know kind of like your um, Mississippi River history, but that river changes course about every thousand years. And it's been trying to change course since the 1950s and switch from going down and emptying into New Orleans into, uh, it's trying to empty into the Atchafalaya River now. And it's only due to the diligence of the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers Hmm. and some lucky, you know, it hasn't flooded over yet, um, that it is still going through and going through New Orleans. Hmm. Like, if you take a look at naturalistically new orleans is like a damned city Hmm. it's going to lose the river it's going to lose the petro companies and the harbors and everything except that it already exists and it has money and influence so they're able to keep the river flowing through it but like there's that kind of undercurrent in the region that things are not going to last like they are right now yeah it's probably the same way people in Venice feel like you know like this is the last generation that's probably going to live in Venice Um, that's probably the closest analogy I can think of obviously there are different histories and cities and everything but like the city's not going to last and I don't know if we're talking on a scale of a generation or a millennia but sure one way nature's got an unbeaten uh, batting average here you know unbeaten (laughs) track record on a long enough timeline um, but no, I, I hear you, and you know we. I, I, th- I remember that scene you're talking about, and it's super affecting. And the the game does this a lot of times about like you know histories. I remember the one about Saint Somewhere's the bar, right? Modest neighborhood bar um, that was just a slow victim of gentrification. Which it, this is not how you normally think of gentrification, but basically they said like first came the squatters, they came after the hurricane, then the squatters attracted the punks, and the punks brought the hipsters, and then, you know, it's one change away from being a wine bar. Um. <laughs> <laughs> I did not go back to St. Somewhere's for the drugs. It sounds like you did. I got the story there. But I yeah. was wearing the polo shirt at that time, so I wasn't allowed in. <laughs> That's so funny. Um, Yeah, I mean, the the game definitely does have an interesting perspective on, like, a place and its history and, like, um, I guess humanity's, like, desires to keep things trending in one direction and nature saying, um, sorry, but that's not in my plans. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, yeah, I mean, um, this is a game that is, like, underpinned by the, the climate crisis, I suppose, right? Like, this... Norco wouldn't exist as a as the game it is right now if that wasn't something that was like sort of submerged in the entire time that we were playing and obviously it it like starts to talk about like the reckoning with that but you're absolutely right that like the other shoe has yet to drop Mm -hmm. well that's that's cheerful um
And so uh, with that, uh, let's sum up our thoughts on Norco with a three-word review. My three-word review is local sci-fi gumbo. Norco has you viewing and interacting with the town's inhabitants and locations as only a local can, with deep knowledge of its history and the forces at work within and upon it, forces like capitalism, ecology, and religion. These forces shape the world that the team at Geography of Robots have created into a striking and highly specific form of sci-fi, like a local favorite cuisine. The official state cuisine of Louisiana is gumbo, which, aside from being delicious, consists primarily of stock, meat, and the Creole holy trinity of celery, bell peppers, and green onions. Norco consists primarily of adventure game mechanics, some truly gorgeous art, and its own holy trinity of setting, characterization, and history. I haven't played a game so perfectly blending these flavors since Disco Elysium, and it does so in such a short runtime. Norco teaches us that local stories are interesting stories, and a tale about a specific place, even one with relatively common ingredients, can still be a gourmet experience. That was a great three-word review. Very much agree with that. (laughs) Thanks. All right, my three-word review for this game is Desolated Bayou Banger. Norco is a gem of a game, pairing high-quality writing with excellent pixel art to tell a story of a time and a place. The time is our own, and the place is Louisiana. The Petro Company towns, the vibrant city of New Orleans, and above all, the foreboding sense of incoming disaster. It embellishes this tale with sci-fi robots, polo shirt-wearing cults, and insane avian-based AIs. But these oddities help reveal, rather than distract, from the deeper truth of the place. This was a very personal gameplay experience for me. I saw so many little details that reminded me of my time in New Orleans, from the lovingly rendered shotgun houses to the swamps and the riverways. Although my stay in the city was a brief three months, I can say that Norco rings true. Norco's mood or theme or color palette certainly wasn't the entirety of the region, but it captured an undercurrent accurately. I'm grateful to the devs for making this game, this desolated Bayou Banger. I agree. Uh, Thank you to all the folks at Geography of Robots. Uh, We had a fantastic time playing this game. It's obviously major thumbs up from uh, Josh and myself. And so I want to say thank you for listening, and if you enjoyed this podcast, then feel free to share it with folks you think might enjoy it as well. And if you want to get in touch, drop us a note at pixelatedplaygrounds at gmail.com or hit us up on Twitter at pixelplaypod. And for us here at Pixelated Playgrounds, I'm Brian Skersha. I'm Josh Kalecki. Take care, and keep on gaming. I'm glad you liked that one. I thought it was uh, sort of hacky, but it was fun. <laughs> I did. I did. It It was, um, it met with my own feelings about that, that I was trying to, like, talk about our uh, write-out or 
uh, fix in words. This is a hard game to like sum up in three words. So, <laughs> um, I honestly like the. It's funny. Like I feel like the bigger the game is, the more vague you have to be with the three-word review to like, like give yourself the the room to ex- expand on. <laughs> now I got you. I got you. I can tell you what my alt three-word review was. Please. Nothing stays buried. Mm. New Orleans is famous for having um, cemeteries instead of graveyards. Right. Because water table, floods, bodies would float back up. No bueno. No bueno. So, you know, nothing stays buried there, but you're playing K, adventure game. You're digging up secrets from the past. And also the hyper-locality of it, too. Good word. Perfect for this game. But that it was so so key to new orleans like it could not have taken place in mississippi no no absolutely like it, i mean it's a game named after a town um of very few people um i don't actually know how many people live in norco let's look that up real quick i think 2400 is what i saw 2400 yeah so we're we're talking about like a very small town like we grew up in a town of 50,000 <laughs> and like it was it was a, you know it's a suburb but it's not a particularly um I guess it's a pretty large suburb all said and done but that that's just an entire different level of of tiny you know hyper locality for only 2,500 people and yet here we are talking about it it's an internationally known game kudos to the dev for like taking something that's close to their heart and blowing it out into an important message in a game that is going to reach the world. Yeah. Uh, big thumbs up for getting this game out there and telling the story of a region. Absolutely. Um, and I we didn't talk about this in the cast, but I think I need to bring it up now, is the music in this game. Um, primarily, the game was uh, a lot of really great ambient work done by Google AI. Uh, <laughs> That's googly eye, except it's spelled different. Um, <laughs> and really, you know, really stunning, uh, great ambient sound for the game. But then there was also a sludge metal album by Baton Rouge band Thou that shipped with the game's OST and was also featured prominently in the game, such as at the credits and other sequences. So huh. this is a game that's like not only bringing the sound of, you know, uh, the video game ambiance that it's obviously steeped in, but also a actual local Baton Rouge band, which I thought was really neat. Always good to bring the highlight the local aspect even more. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, we'll probably hear some of them in the uh, in the cast as we uh, as I you know pick and choose what I uh, bring into this. This is definitely one of those games where I already downloaded it and purchased on Bandcamp because it's good stuff. <laughs> 